0: All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Twimble AI podcast. I am, of course, your host, Sam Charrington, and today I'm joined by Sarah Hooker. Sarah is a director at Cohere and head of Cohere for AI, Cohere's research lab. Before we get going, be sure to take a moment to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to today's show. Sarah, welcome back to the podcast.
1: It is so lovely to be here. We were just uh, reminiscing. It's been a while, so it's so lovely to be back.
0: It's been a while, and I'm super excited to chat with you once again. We've done a little bit of the personal catching up, and we'll do some of the industry catching up as well, and we can maybe start with where you are now at Cohere. The last time we spoke, you were at Google. So tell us a little bit about what you're up to, what Cohere is up to,
1: yeah, the last time we spoke I was at Google Brain, which doesn't even exist anymore. So <laughs> it's interesting. So it was it I started was at Brain for a long time, probably five years. And then about a year and a half ago, Nick and Aiden first approached me with this idea that they wanted to have a research lab. And I remember at the time I said to them that they're frankly crazy. <laughs> That's a lot of work to do to put together these research labs. But we were thinking about what would be ambitious and what would contribute a different type of research. And in my mind, i had always wanted to do more hybrid research. So have kind of traditional industry lab, but also have these open science initiatives. And so Cohere 4 AI was really, when I joined Cohere a year and a half ago, the goal was to create a new type of research space. So working at the frontier of language models and scaling a lot of this infrastructure and engineering, but also creating these cross-institutional ties. So we're one of the few spaces where I think you have both the traditional industry lab, like a Google DeepMind or Microsoft Research, but you also have this open science initiative where we collaborate fairly broadly with researchers all over the world. But it's been a roller coaster ride. Like when I joined a year and a half ago, I didn't anticipate any of the things would happen over the last year. And it's felt just absurdly kind of surreal in many ways because of the amount of interest and everything that's Mm -hmm. been going on.
0: And was Cohere formed, was it formed specifically in light of LLMs and it was probably GPT-3 era or did that just happen?
1: It just happened. So Cohere was founded probably three years ago about. So the founders, Aiden, oh, okay. Nick, and Ivan. Uh, so it was pre-GPT era. In fact, particular like chat GPT era, I, that happened. And I think that surprised us all. It's very rare that you're working on something and then all of a sudden millions of people around the world want to use it. But right. what was fascinating was that when they kicked off, they knew they wanted to do language. And so Cohere has always been just a language first company. But I think that for them, the widespread adoption of the it's felt like a wave (laughs) this year Mm -hmm. because there's just been so much inbound interest. And that was not formed. The intentions of forming Cohere far preceded that.
0: Got it. And the Cohere for AI, that came after, it sounds like, Cohere.
1: Yes and no. It's very interesting. So before Cohere, Ivan and Aiden, two of the founders, have met at University of Toronto. They actually started something which was a decentralized research lab. So very in the spirit of like, let's recreate the spaces in which research exists. They called it 4AI. And I remember when Aiden and Nick approached me, this is one of the things that swayed me because I knew that they already really believed in it because it's where they had both met and they had both connected about research. So Ivan and Aiden published one of the most celebrated research papers that year in Europe out of this 4AI decentralized collaborative effort. At the time, Ivan uh, Ivan had actually dropped out of school completely. So he was a dropout, but he was doing research with (laughs) Aiden. And that's how they started thinking about Cohere. And that's when Nick joined. So Nick was at Google Brain at the time, and he joined as the third co-founder. But 4AI really was the foundation of Cohere. And now 4AI is just much more, I would say, I guess, ambitious form of the original 4AI while still preserving the legacy, this commitment to having these new spaces where we can cross collaborate.
0: Got it. And what was that research paper you referenced?
1: I can't remember the exact name, but I remember it had something to do with uh, what was it? I will ask Ivan, but I remember it was kind of uh, a fun one. I want to say it had something to do with dropout, but maybe it didn't. But okay. it was interesting because it was Ivan's first paper as well, and it won an oral that year. So Aiden's most mm. recognized paper is, of course, Transformers. So he did that while mm-hmm. he was at Brain. And what's interesting about that paper is basically everyone who was an author on that paper has now founded a company. <laughs> but that was really a pivotal paper for many reasons. So this was not that paper, but it was really a special paper because it was a paper that came out of totally non-traditional research settings. So no work had just been done under those decentralized types of forming collaborations where everyone was dropouts, or they were from University of Toronto, or they were just independent researchers getting together to work in these empty offices and work towards this paper goal.
0: And so, does Cohere for AI retain some of that distributed model or agenda, or is it all Cohere employees and more like a traditional research lab?
1: It's both. So one of my bets was I wanted to have this open science, this ability to collaborate. I think that's increasingly important because we now see with many labs the opposite trend, but I actually think that It's an important setting, especially for cross-institutional initiatives. So things like our am Multilingual, which covers 101 languages. We also have a full-time research staff. My team is actually distributed. I wanted to take a bet on ML talent. And so I have research scientists who are in Germany, who are in Amsterdam, Canada, US, Brazil, Nigeria. And we have our research scholars, which are... They're really crafted to be entry points into machine learning research. And there again, it's remote first. So that bet, even with the full-time staff, was a bet that we could find ML talent in many different places in the world. And in fact, it was a strategic bet as well. I really wanted this uh, lab to be... I knew when I left Brain that the goal wasn't to reproduce a Google brain, because frankly, that would have not been a very productive avenue. (laughs) We're never going to have 900 people in the research team. So my goal Mm -hmm. is really, how do we produce research that's truly different? What are we contributing that's unique? And one of those bets was how we hire, where we're really hiring talent all over the world. Part of this is the bet that when your talent pool is so big, you just find really brilliant people. And I'm really proud of our full-time research staff. They've produced some incredible works this year. But the other bet was we should collaborate widely and we should, in contrast to what other labs are doing, where they're increasingly locking down, we should lean into openly collaborating. And a perfect example of that is the IA project, which just involves independent researchers all over the world from both traditional academic institutions like MIT, but also just independent researchers who are starting their journey. So the two, I think, are well balanced, but they're both part of this bet that we should be producing a different type of research and that as a lab, we're only going to be producing something meaningful if we're also changing the spaces in which research is done.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about AYA and what that project is aiming to do?
1: Aya is a grumpy project. <laughs> so Aya is actually, the word Aya means, uh, it's a twee word, it means fern, and it really refers, it's a symbol, which is the perseverance of ferns to grow still in inhospitable places. Aya is truly something that I would describe as perseverance. It's this effort to bring together researchers all over the world and to make these models not just English first. So in some ways, we have had this really exciting set of breakthroughs where we now have this incredible capability for generative AI in English. So you can, this is part Mm -hmm. of what's made the last few years exciting. And I would say there's a few ingredients that have gotten to those breakthroughs. One is just scale. The other is this structured data instruction fine-tuned where you have questions and answers. And structuring the data in that way has really led to a big leap in zero-shot performance and the ability of these models to perform well on unseen tasks. And then the third thing is these preference training. So having preferences about what we prefer really helps tuning these models. The scale thing benefits both English and multilingual, but The fact that we have no data outside of English for a lot of these instruction fine-tuned is what really holds back these leaps in technology for all the other languages. But it's also timely because one thing we get when we scale is that we require less data to see these gains in performance so we can get away with smaller amounts of data. So it's actually the perfect time to think about how do we make this coverage exist for other languages because we don't need much. We just need to focus on high quality contributions. So that's the IA project. It's this bet that if we work with researchers all over the world and focus on these optimization techniques that work well for other languages, we're going to see these breakthroughs. So we're covering 101 languages. So it's going to be the biggest open source model that will be released for languages all over the world. And it will be released next January. And it is a generative model, but it also is interesting. We're doing multilingual red teaming. So even Red teaming, even safety is typically only done in English. So we're doing red teaming across multiple languages as well.
0: It calls to mind the Big Science Project and Bloom. Is that a reasonable comparison or how would you compare, contrast those efforts?
1: Yeah, I think Bloom is really special. It focused on pre-training. So pre-training is also really important. We almost have multiple stages. So we have these pre-trained models on the internet. And even when we crawl the internet, there's been choices made that mean that really English is overrepresented. Mm -hmm. So Bloom was an effort to restructure that pre-training data so you have better coverage. And their goal was 47 languages. Actually, I would describe this effort as complementary. We're focusing on let's say you have a pre trained model, what can you do in this fine tuning stage to really allow it to unlock a lot of that potential? We are focused on more languages, so 101, but we're mm-hmm. actually benchmarking with Bloom, with other base models, because our goal really isn't. I would also say the spirit of our collaboration is the same way. We've really made this bet that it should be an open science initiative and it should involve yeah. researchers from all over the world. It's really interesting because this is really really hard as an initiative. So I remember when I talked to the big science organizers, they said it was great, but never again, (laughs) because you're having to also redesign. I know (laughs) because you're having to also redesign the incentives of how people collaborate and involve people from all over the world. And so one thing we've been thinking a lot about is how do you structure open science initiatives and what works when people are working with each other from very different institutions. And we've done some bets that are a bit different. Like I think what with big science, they gathered all the researchers at the beginning. We instead made small teams. So we had We have five teams and they all work on different pieces and they're very tightly coordinated. So you get this. I always think with research, a lot of why people do research is this combination of you're very driven by the curiosity of the problem. You're also very driven by who you work with. And so we spend a lot of time putting the teams together to make sure that that people found a lot of meaning, even who they were working with. But it's really interesting. I think a lot about this, how what incentives need to exist to create new spaces for collaboration.
0: Mm -hmm. When you think about the goals of the project, the AYA project, it sounds like a lot of curation, a lot of collaboration and communication challenges. Are there also kind of deep nitty gritty technical challenges that you're getting into there as well?
1: Yes, because... Think about this. What are the main challenges for multilingual? One is how do you balance all these languages? So think of it like this a model is this big ball of water. You kind of slosh it different directions to get coverage of different parts of the bottle. When you slosh it, mm-hmm. you kind of remove w- water from one piece. So the main question, the, the technical optimization question is firstly, how do you balance all these languages? What's the right ratio? but also there's this really interesting data quality challenge because it's very fascinating. We've scaled models and we've also scaled data, but a lot of data is really poor quality, especially when you get outside of multilingual. One thing we noticed early on is that this is actually a wider crisis the whole field is facing where all our traditional academic benchmarks are around these very discrete one-word answers. It's like we measure performance based on the ability to correctly classify the sentiment of something. And that's because for a lot of natural language processing, we spent decades on crafting very narrow measurements of success, and it was very task-specific. But now we have these universal models, and actually what we appear to like most are these fluid responses, longer completions. And just this is what we feel is most exciting and most interesting about these models, is that they're able to engage in a way that feels very fluid. So moving towards that requires an entirely different type of data and also means that a lot of the existing instruction style data for multilingual just falls flat. It leads to two shorter completions. So you'll see this if you look at even the existing open source models for multilingual is that they'll generate very short completions. Our goal is how can we get more longer completions and also weight the type of data correctly that is better. Also data augmentation. Because we have such limited data, we have to be really clever and take bets with how do we augment the existing data. One is translation. Can we translate high quality English data sets across many languages? And is that a valuable strategy for augmenting. Mm -hmm. The downside is that there's biases as well to these translation models. They're not perfect. But for low-resource languages, it can still make a huge difference And so that combined with other augmentation strategies, we've quadrupled the size of the data set. So we've really focused on data set augmentation. The optimization challenges I really want us to tackle in the second stage of this project next year is tokenization, which typically does not work at, at all for scripted languages like Hindi or Arabic or Japanese, Korean, but also this idea of preference training. So Preference training has been this sparkle dust, which has really unlocked a lot of potential in English. We tell the model which one we prefer, and that's used to guide the model completions through really reinforcement learning by human feedback or something else that's optimization based. What's the problem? What if you have 101 languages? Do you need preference data for all 101? There's this really fascinating mm-hmm. question that maybe you can actually just have a subset of preferences, and there's transferability between languages. So I think there's Mm -hmm. a lot of very interesting questions around that.
0: Yeah. You mentioned that you'll be testing against multiple underlying models. Are you expecting that a model like Bloom that was pre-trained with multilingual Capabilities in mind will perform better than a model that wasn't, even if it is perhaps a larger model. Otherwise, or uh, do you have any early insight into how that might play out?
1: Yeah, it's actually a very interesting question because I think there's actually two questions there. So one is okay. when we pre-train, Bloom is actually a very large model. It's over 100 billion parameters. It's massive. At the time, mm-hmm. it was one of the biggest. It was also trained on 46 languages. I think there's an interesting question of do we expect that to be You know, perform better than uh, English only base, which was trained on maybe majority English, but is equivalent in size? Almost certainly. There's a perhaps more interesting question though that let's say we take a smaller model. So, for example, MT5 is another model that's been released by Google as open source. So it's a valid base. We can play with that. MT5 Mm -hmm. only goes up to 13 billion parameters but it covers Mm -hmm. 101 languages. Here's the Mm -hmm. interesting question. Let's say you scale that Let's say that you have the $13 Is it more valid to have a $100 plus model that's trained on fewer languages as a pre-trained base? Or do you still want a smaller model, which is trained on more? The main bottleneck for representing languages typically is that you need more capacity to represent them. It's called the curse of multilinguality. And it's uh, really this curse is that the more languages you need, the more you need to scale. Otherwise, you, you you cannibalize from some languages to represent the others. So Mm -hmm. for me, your question is interesting because one thing we do want to explore is let's try a 52B and 100B for fewer languages in pre-training and see how the scaling impacts it. Maybe it's okay to go with less languages as long as you scale up because the fine (coughs) tuning covers all the languages and you might still get a lot of value there.
0: Yeah, it kind of speaks to the question that you asked or mentioned that interested you previously, which is if there's a high degree of transferability, then it's not like you're dividing up your parameter space into by the number of languages. You're, all of the languages are kind of contributing linearly or proportionally to the model's overall performance because there's that high degree of transferability.
1: So that's typically why we train on all these languages at the same time. So that's why Mm -hmm. the whole push towards uh, joint training on languages rather than fine tuning on one language at a time is that there's benefits, especially for low resource. What typically is observed is that joint training really helps the low resource. You can a little bit from the high resource, like the English, but you're giving it to the low resource because of that learning of general semantic structures that are shared across languages. And so there is this really interesting question of how we're kind of artificially split between pre-training now and instruction fine-tuning. How does the number Mm -hmm. of languages in the pre-training dynamic influence this transferability that we're seeing in this fine tuning stage. So I think this will also help answer that. We're actually going to be releasing two papers, one for the model and then one for the data set as well, because the data set is another part of this initiative, like how we're going to have a very skewed data set when we collect, because in many ways, the data set reflects who's participating and who's in the IA project. So there's this really interesting dynamic as well, where how do you deal with skewed data and how do we deal with all these imbalances in our training data?
0: And is the model currently training Are you pre the training process or post the training process?
1: We have been training a few models, we, uh, we, we're we using the MT5 as the base, so 13 billion. Okay. Um, I think we're really happy with the model. I think now we're aiming to set a new standard for the wider ecosystem. And so we're probably going to scale it to 52B, but already we're seeing huge improvements in just the generative quality for all the languages. Um, so I think that's partly why we're going to be releasing all these soon, just so people can start to build on it. but. We already see much longer completions, much more fluid representations, and we've just increased language coverage a lot. So moving to 101 languages, it just means that there's much better coverage versus the existing open source models. So I would say Bloom, for example, or Bloom Z only represents 47.
0: Mm-hmm. Nice. So how much of the operational scaling is less an issue for you than, you know, for example, Bloom or, or that yeah, pre-training effort? Is that fair or is instruction tuning?
1: No, the efficiency load is different. So pre-training would require just uh, far more volume of data. So your training time is longer, particularly at the scale that Bloom was, which was above 100 billion. We're doing instruction fine tuning, which means that we can iterate and experiment with a few different combinations. We're still doing sizable models. These are multi-device model once you get to the 13B stage. So it takes quite a long time for each experiment. But pre-training is really the painful part about a lot of these computational yeah. processes so we can experiment and try quite a few different combinations more easily.
0: Got it. I also wanted to talk about some of the other papers that are that have come out of Cohere for AI. One that uh, was on my radar is the One Less is More paper, which is looking at data pruning for pre training Can you talk a little bit about the motivation for that work?
1: It's really this question of do we need, all of the capacity that we throw at these training regimes. There's been two trends that have characterized our field for the last decade. One is more parameters is better. The other is more data Mm -hmm. is better. And They've been really frustrating trends in a way because they're so painfully simple. (laughs) We're researchers, (laughs) but we just throw more data at the problem or we throw more parameters at the problem. And so this is really asking that question of why do we need so much data and what do we get with the data? And in particular, it's asking if we cared more about data quality, could we get away with less and could we still perform as well? And for me, this is part of a more broader inflection point within the field of for a long time, it was really hard to get my colleagues to care about data. I mean, it was really painful because the whole premise of how people thought about deep neural networks was that you don't have to care about data because you allow the model to deal with it. You delegate representation to the model. I think now we're at this point where, in fact, yes, you can do that. But it's incredibly costly because you pay for it in terms of number of parameters. If your data is junk, what you're really doing is just regularizing your model, and you're just you need a lot more capacity to compensate for the junk data to still be able to extract value. This originally was part of a series of work that I did on how what does a model forget when you remove most of the parameters? It forgets when you remove 90%, it forgets these noisy or rare examples, which tells us that 90% of all the weights in the model are used to to compensate for these really noisy examples. So I think a lot of this data pruning effort is this belief that if you isolate higher quality data, you can just get away with a lot less in terms of training time, but also the capacity that you need. So this paper was led by Max, and it's really working, I'm really proud of because it looks at data pruning at scale. And what I mean by scale is that when we do pre-training, as you talked about, this idea that that's where the cost of all the, the training of these models is it's expensive for two reasons. You're processing a lot of data. Typically we crawl the internet and we're extracting really these unsupervised texts and then we train them in an unsupervised way. But also because the amount of data is so huge, you barely get through an epoch of data. So this is the this is why in the NLP world people often talk about one epoch of training as like the standard, which is so fascinating. That's why people talk about we're running of data because it's based on this assumption that we're only ever going to train on something once. Whereas computer vision Mm -hmm. is totally the opposite. People train on it for 90 epochs, which means they see the same data point 90 times. So I think it's really interesting. But here this question is, well, do we need to train on everything? And if we train on less, we can probably do more epochs. We can see it more times, which is really interesting. What we show is you can get away with a lot less. So we show that with 30%, you can still achieve Equivalent performance, which is remarkable. But what we also show is it matters how you select for this high quality data. We benchmark three different techniques of different computational intensity. Because remember, here, computational efficiency is essential since you're trying to score the internet. You're trying to determine what is good quality over the entire internet. And that's fun because what we find out is that simple methods for scoring what's good are far better than very expensive methods. And so this tells us that firstly, it's kind of puzzling why, but secondly, that even very cheap signal about what's good can be a viable path for data pruning. And so people should use it as a first step.
0: And did you present original methodologies for doing the pruning or were you comparing existing techniques for that data curation?
1: We compared three techniques. So one was in many ways, the simplest, it's just perplexity. So perplexity is just Mm -hmm. generated every time a model is something somebody's put through a model. So this is almost the crudest model signal you could possibly have. And the second one was much more expensive. It's L2 norm. So it's called EL2N. It was proposed a different setting. It was proposed as a pruning metric. So for understanding what weights are important. So not within the data space, within the weight space, but it requires quite a lot of computationally expensive calculations. You need to see how the gradient norm changes over various checkpoints. So you have to kind of take snapshots across model training. The third mm-hmm. one, and for that one, you have to do it, I believe the suggested one was over 15 model training. So you have to have 15 separate models that have been trained independently. And then you take this computation of like, how much does the gradient norm change? The third one was memorization score, also quite expensive. But both the EL2N and the, and the memorization score were not proposed for data pruning. So we were trying them out for a context that they weren't imagine, originally imagined for. And then we compare that with perhaps the grumpiest baseline, does this outperform a random selection? And so really there, what we're asking is a good method should at least be better than randomly choosing what data to keep. And we Mm -hmm. found that only perplexity did. So perplexity was the only Mm -hmm. metric that consistently outperformed, (laughs) which suggests we have a lot more work to do because mm-hmm. you know, we do need more formally rigorous methods, but clearly the methods that we have proposed that are very rigorous, when we test them in the setting for this use case, they are not up to par with just a very simple model signal. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you have any intuition around, you know, what may emerge in terms of kind of the next step, the next improvement in data selection method?
1: Maybe I'll share how I see this direction in terms of what I think is really the big picture view of this. One mm-hmm. of the reasons I'm attracted to data pruning is that in some ways, there's a very key underlying question, which is, we seem to have the least efficient way for training these models right now. We show all the examples to the models the same amount of times, whether that's one or 90 times, but no matter how difficult or how simple the data point is, it's just presented to the model. It's not how humans work. Typically, when we find something challenging, we like squint in, we ask, oh, tell me more, or we ask a clarifying question. We have a high degree of saliency that makes us way more efficient because we spend more time on hard things and less times on easy things. So the overall direction that I think is fascinating, data pruning fits in as a very simple example of this, where you put zero attention on some examples and 100% of attention on others. But the future of that is adaptive training in general, where Over the course of training, you adaptively identify what is salient for your learning procedure, and you spend more capacity there. Right now, we allocate the same amount of capacity to all examples. So I see this from a few different directions. Data pruning is one, but even how we use the weights within a model is another. Right now, we do global updates, which means that no matter what, you're updating all of your weights for an incoming batch. But this doesn't really make sense. We need ways that we have more modular capacity, that we have kind of fusing and merging of different model sections and much more, you know, another work that came out of the lab that was led by Ted was Mixture of Experts. Mixture of Experts for me is, one of the first steps in this direction of just having much more decomposable components to your model and having this adaptive capacity where you can route. So there's two data pruning and general adaptive capacity are how I think that we're going to be creating models that are more efficient, because right now we just spend the most. We show all the examples, we update all weights, We do the same number of forward passes. And if you think about the world, one of our great benefits navigating the world and efficiency is that we can choose to ignore and we can choose Mm -hmm. how we allocate attention. So that's missing right now from these models.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about mixture of experts broadly and ultimately this work in particular? It's I think, come up in the context of uh, some speculation that GPT-4 is a mixture of experts-based model. And so I'm curious how you explain it, where you see it going, and uh, what this particular paper uh, looked at with regard to MOE.
1: Yeah, so mixture of experts in general is this idea that you have many different models that learn slightly different things. And then at the end of the day, when you actually have your trained model, you route your input, whether that's language or whether that's images, to the expert most specialized to represent it. It's a beautiful idea. In some ways, it gets this essence of how do we create something where we have specialization. Instead of just having these massive models where you update everything, you have a model which might be better at coding than it is at generating or processing French prompts. And so the idea is is that you have this specialization over time. What are the challenges of mixture of experts? One is, frankly, that they're very hard to train. They tend to be very sensitive. So because you're essentially doing routing, so you have to decide where something goes, Experts can become biased early on in training. So if an expert is favored early on, it almost gets favored repeatedly, which means that there's all sorts of tricks to try and ensure that you don't choose your favorite expert early on and then end up sending it everything. The most Mm -hmm. crude trick, which actually is widely used, is you do like load balancing with random routing. (laughs) So during (laughs) training, you might just randomly allocate, but Mm -hmm. I'm sure we can do better. Is one of the open questions. The second tricky thing about mixture of experts is that When you actually deploy these models, you have to hold in memory all the different experts because you have to have the expert ready if it gets chosen. This turns out to be very challenging for actually making these models usable.
0: Just from a... Operational scalability scalability perspective.
1: Operation scalability, because of the amount of memory that you need in the machine yeah. to be able to hold all these checkpoints of fairly big models and then call the one that's needed. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is that this was a topic of our work. So we Ted led this work and it was about how do we make mixture of experts extremely parameter efficient. And what I mean by that is using one to two percent of the weight updates so that we can actually only update a few weights and then only use a few weights when you're holding stuff in uh, these things in memory. And so it combined mixture of experts with these parameter efficient modules. When you're training your mixture of experts, you don't actually have to bring in the whole model in memory. You have a single model and your mixture of experts are these tiny little routers and tiny little modules on top of that. So you're adding less parameters, but it means that you have dramatic savings in your memory requirements. And that's an important continuing direction, which is how do we make these actually more usable and lower latency. But in general, Mixture of Experts is a really exciting direction because it's also just shown clear breakthroughs on certain tasks. So I think you alluded to it, but this idea that Mixture of Experts is behind some of these very performant models, which has been more or less (laughs) confirmed at this point. It's Of course, showing huge promise. The tricky thing is the optimization, which takes a lot of effort, as well as the deployment. So there's also a reason why GPU 4 is considered extremely high latency (laughs) by Mm -hmm. those who use it. It takes a long time. And I don't know the details of how it's currently productionized, but I'm guessing part of the issue with the high latency is this model choice structure.
0: Mm. When... These GPT four kind of speculation came out. It was suggested that you know almost like the fact that OpenAI had to use or ultimately use MoE for GPT four was kind of indication that the scaling laws were petering out. Right, they couldn't train a bigger model, kind of bigger monolithic model. They had to do these eight experts, but. In contrast, you express excitement about MOE and what it was able to produce. You buy into that idea that it is a—I don't know—a cop out in a sense.
1: There's no denying that one of the reasons that people gravitate towards MOEs is this idea that it reduces the effective number of flops. So what what are flops? It means yeah. that the bigger you go, the typically the more flops that you have. These are these matrix multiplies, floating put point operations. And uh, when you have MOE, because you don't go deep, essentially, you're going massively wide, like you have just many models you can choose from. Your individual models can be big, but they're not extremely big. And instead, you're focusing on the routing as the magic. So you reduce your flops. That almost certainly is a practical constraint because you can essentially have way more compute. But your latency or your necessary energy at serving time is much lower because you're not using all of it. I think that's still one of the motivating factors behind MOE. If I were to talk about these two components, right? One is the effective compute, this minimizing flops. The other is a specialization mm-hmm. ability. I would actually say specialization as uh, observed property is sometimes not immediately clear with these trained models. So sometimes it's not that we see that one of these models only does code and one of these models always does French. Right. So definitely what's motivating the interest right now is more this effective compute argument what motivates a lot of people in their general interest in why this architecture is special is the idea if we do it better, because optimization is still very unknown with this type of architecture, we can get that specialization. But you are right that if it was feasible to train this a massive model instead, <laughs> there would probably be more exploration in that direction. I don't think it means scaling laws are petering out. I just think it's very difficult to train models mm-hmm. of that size while still preserving training dynamics. The main issue when you go with a single huge model is that training is frequently derailed. You have lost spikes. It is extremely difficult. And the people who know how to manage that optimization process are just very... This is a very small group of people. Whereas if you do MOE, it's sensitive its own ways. How do you route? Do you have balanced MOEs? Its own dark set of dark art, but it does avoid some of the gradient saturation and instability that seems to happen in these much bigger models.
0: You addressed uh, a point that I wanted to raise with regard to your initial description of MOE as like these semantically significant experts in some kind of hierarchical arrangement or a parallel arrangement. And that's often not the way they're practically implemented. My impression of the GPT-4 stuff is that the like the data partitioning that was used to train the experts is, was rather, you know, it was fairly naive. There wasn't any attempt to do that. It was kind of just splitting up the data and training the each of those experts, are the experts in an MOE type of model, are they trained independently or are they trained kind of end-to-end with this, the multiplexer thing being part of the, you know, what's learned in the process?
1: Yeah, so... Typically they're trained together so you want to learn the routing. The routing is the magic of these mixture of experts. Yeah. So, but there's a lot of tricks beyond that to stabilize your routing. One is that you could have learning different learning rates for different experts so you kind of try and stabilize it by making sure experts get updated at different rates and it kind of induces the experts to learn different things. But I also think the overall goal is typically To take these experts, learn learn them jointly, and try and induce specialization. I do think in this case, what's interesting is that we haven't observed much specialization. I don't know about the the concrete aspects of GPT four because it wasn't published. But we do know from other papers that have published that it's very hard to induce the type of data specialization, especially if you use random shuffling, which is what tends to work the best. So for most of our models today, random shuffling of data is hard to beat, and so even when mixture of experts who talked about the data partitioning being fairly naive. Even for published papers on mixture of experts, typically the shuffling is preserved the same way it is done for other models. So it will be randomly shuffled. And what that means is we see some differences in the ability of these models to specialize, but it feels still a bit cherry picked. So if you look at the papers, we actually explored this in our paper. We looked at the differences between if we showed the mixture of experts tokens versus if we showed embeddings. And the difference being is that if you show mixture of experts embeddings, it's much more of a heavy, prior on what is the topic of the input. So we're kind of imposing this a more heavy onus towards specialization. What we found is this actually hurt performance. It wasn't as competitive of just showing the tokens. And so sometimes efforts to induce specialization result in worse performance, which you're right to point out. It's very interesting. It does seem like the driving factor right now for why people love these models. It's not the inherent goal of why these models were first designed. And I I still think that is partly due to the opaqueness of what optimization works for this type of model. So I'm optimistic that we will see better recipes to induce specialization. And as someone who cares a lot about adaptive computation and the goals of it, I still think of a mixture of experts as this really interesting direction. But why do people use it widely now? It's more for this energy conservation reason, which is that you're just gain it's a very clever technique to scale across rather than scale deep. Mm -hmm. And that has resulted in really nice gains in performance. And so a lot of people gravitate towards it for that.
0: Got it. Awesome. I also wanted to ask you about the Grand Illusion paper, which looks at portability, like framework types of issues, right? Was this investigating a pain point that emerged in other projects?
1: This project started because I wrote the hardware lottery a few years ago. And the hardware lottery is really this paper, which is a grumpy paper. And it's saying we're very locked (laughs) into the tools that we have. (laughs) And it says basically like the tools that we have dictate so much of like what ideas are possible. And really the ideas that we end up pursuing. A perfect example is that. GPUs really unlocked deep neural networks. Like if you think back to 2012 and why convolutional networks were basically adopted overnight, it was because GPUs over the 2000s have been very intentionally slowly repurposed from video games to work with convolutional neural networks, and that was the trick. It allowed for much deeper networks, which turned out to be the crucial ingredient that was missing. Even though for decades the researchers working on deep neural networks have been marginalized, and in fact, I think it's one the most interesting examples of tooling paying a deciding factor on when ideas are recognized. That was a paper which, for me, had come from this place of trying to understand even some of my own ideas and their incompatibility with hardware. For example, sparsity is a very widely used compression idea, but it's widely used in research forums because it achieves the best uh, levels of compression. It doesn't play well with GPUs. There's no gains because our whole computer science and hardware field has been built around the idea of matrices, that all your inputs are going to be in a structured form. So this idea of an unstructured form where you have some things that are sparse and some things that are not, it results in really not any game because it still has to be put into a matrix for the hardware to recognize it. So I wanted to interrogate this and Fraser and Zhang led this paper and I wanted to ask, well, how locked in are we really? Because we know we're locked in, but it's hard to tell because we often only realize after the fact what was holding us back. So we only realized that GPUs were critical for deep neural networks after 2012. But how can we tell how bad the situation is? And so this paper asks, it says all these mainstream frameworks, so JAX, TensorFlow, PyTorch, they all are purported to be general framework. They're all Python libraries. They're workhorses of ML. They're used by millions of people around the world. And most ideas, probably 99.9% are probably developed in one of these frameworks right now. How portable are they or how locked in are they with the hardware that they use? And this is a simple idea, but what we find is that these Frameworks, even though they report to be general, are just extremely locked into underlying hardware. So, for example, when you try to transfer PyTorch to TPUs, 40% of all functions fail, which means that if you need to translate an idea to a different hardware type, it's just not usable. We also mm-hmm. find that there's just massive slowdowns in performance, which sometimes are untenable. So some functions just fail to transfer across completely in a usable way. What all this means is that there's first class citizens for each type of hardware. So for example, Jack. JAX is actually a promising software framework because there's hardly any failures. It works. Everything works and in- TPUs, everything works in GPUs, but you see massive slowdowns on GPUs. So above 90% of all functions have massive slowdowns on GPUs. And that's because it's being developed with TPUs in mind. So what the big picture of this is, I think that we really don't have a sense of how our field is narrowing. It's happening with software. It's also happening with architectures. We have, everything basically now is built on transformers. And What's interesting is that you see hardware overfit to transformers, which means it's going to be harder and harder and harder to do the next step shift to a totally different architecture. And NVIDIA, mm-hmm. in their latest H100, even called it the transformer accelerator, even though that was a clever marketing and there wasn't really anything mm-hmm. under the hood. There wasn't just accelerating matrix multiplier. It also
0: speaks to the what you're calling out here.
1: Yes, yes. And it's very interesting because this is a wider... I worry a lot about this because our field moves really fast and it's very fascinating because we forget that a mere decade plus ago, there was no one in mainstream machine learning who would have vouched for deep neural networks. <laughs> and so it's kind of absurd because transformers are not the finish line. I think most people who work in this field know that, but it is becoming stickier to deviate from transformers. And so the the time it takes for us to make the next leap is just getting okay, more pronounced by some of the stickiness and friction.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you propose an, an answer, a solution? It doesn't seem like the tools can predate the method, right? That doesn't make sense. So Does it always have to be like this? Is this just kind of the way the game has to be played?
1: I think that's partly why I wanted to focus on software portability. So typically, a lot of our research innovation is empirical. So no one wanted to acknowledge deep neural networks before they empirically worked. To get Mm -hmm. empirical evidence, you have to make the cost of iteration cheaper. So you have to make it easier for people to experiment across different settings and to understand the limitations and settings in which the methods work. So for me, software portability is crucial because the ability to experiment on different hardware is crucial there's some hardware uh, that really facilitates certain subsets of functions. So even documenting the latency of functions across is actually part of this wider benchmarking. As we get even more narrow in what types of software supported, we need to have ways to evaluate what software frameworks are getting better at this and what they're getting worse at this. So this is part of a wider initiative where the crucial thing in terms of uh, enabling innovation is decreasing the cost of switching and increasing the benefits of being doing ablations on different types of hardware. That only works mm-hmm. if we decrease the cost all. And this comes in different forms, but for me, JAX is promising because at least it doesn't have failures across both hardware types. For PyTorch to lose 40% of all its functions when it switches to TPUs, that really tells me that the compiler team for TPUs needs to pay attention. If this is one of the most widely used frameworks with the most adoption, it needs to be supported. Otherwise, we're just going to see these large cliffs where people who use PyTorch are locked into GPUs and can only experiment there, can only see what ideas work there. We also point out to concrete examples where ideas have not been able to be pursued because of the software lottery. One is early exiting. So it's interesting. Early exiting, the main benefit is you don't have to pass something through the entire network and you can exit early if the example is easy. You gain a lot. It doesn't work at all with TensorFlow. Why? Because you Mm -hmm. have the initialization of the graph at the beginning. This Mm -hmm. is a graph style software program. And what that means is that because the entire network is in the graph represented, you don't gain any memory because <laughs> you can't modify it once you have initialized it. So mm. there's things like this where I think part of what we're trying to call out is some areas where compiler level developers and hardware experts need to get close into the room and see the tension points. And frankly, I often find the most important first step in these type of problems is to characterize the severity of the issue. Yeah. And This work I'm proud of because it does that in a very grumpy way, but in a very needed way because we need to start collaborating with hardware architects in particular and with software architects.
0: Mm -hmm. In a sense, it strikes me a bit as documentation or transparency effort for frameworks akin to model cards and data cards, things like that, data sheets for data sets and model cards.
1: Yeah. And I think that that's actually a nice characterization because part of our goal is to create a common language to bridge these different subfields. One of the reasons this is so underexplored is because hardware architects typically have a separate training, a siloed type of jargon, and don't really talk to algorithm developers. In fact, most algorithm developers, like myself, I build models. We're just stuck with the hardware we get, and we don't really influence the next generation of hardware. Co-design has become much more of a prevalent concept only recently and it's still very awkward. The timelines are different. The time to produce a new algorithm is much shorter than the timeline to produce a next generation of hardware. So for me part of what I see these type of efforts it's giving us a common language to articulate pain points. For example, I might not know the jargon that's needed to describe what changes to need to happen to a compiler, but I do know now what functions are most impacted by this lack of portability. And if they're central to my idea, I now have a language to express why it's important that we support them. And that's mm-hmm. often the first crucial piece in creating better cohesion between very distinct communities who don't talk to each other that much because their training has been so siloed and because the cultures are very different. Hardware architects also yeah. have a very different culture. We're very um, the ML and researchers tend to favor a primarily open source community. Even the social sites that are used are entirely different where hardware architects are always on LinkedIn. (laughs) I do, I now have several ongoing collaborations with different hardware architects and it's very fascinating. So part of this type of work is meant to give us a joint language to prioritize some of these changes.
0: Hmm, Interesting. Yeah, also calls to mind uh, visualizing browser compatibility charts you know, for like CSS and HTML. Well, this will work here. This will work there. You need polyfills for this because it's not native to the browser. And certainly web development would be much less far along if we hadn't come up with a way to talk plainly about what works where.
1: Yeah, exactly. I agree. Yeah, that's a great example.
0: This is switching gears quite a bit. One of the things that you've been thinking quite a bit is what you characterize as a values divide in the AI community, talking about folks that are concerned about existential risk of AI and that kind of thing. How do you think about all that?
1: Yeah, I think we're at an interesting time because it's very rare that the ideas that you work on are adopted by millions of people um, overnight. And I think we're at this moment where clearly some of those technologies connected in a much more deep way with, I would say, um very fundamental emotional way with a lot of the general population, people who are not AI researchers, people who are Mm -hmm. not developers. Uh, What's interesting about that is that didn't happen with previous breakthroughs. With convolutional neural networks, it was widely applied. So it probably lives behind your phone on different apps, but it didn't connect with the everyday person in a similar way, whereas this has really emotionally connected. Most people have played with a chatbot over the last few months. Most people have experimented and probed it. I think that part of it is that it feels very interpretable to people, which is really interesting. The the ability that you can probe through chat and see the responses and identify where the model fails and where it's good. I think that's connected people to the idea of playing with an algorithm in a much more visceral way than they ever felt with computer vision, which typically was for a few narrow tasks and was always behind the hood, so to speak. Like People didn't really probe a computer computer vision model. But what this means is that there's just been, I would say, all the emotions that come with people experiencing new technology. I also think from the researcher side, it's been the amount of interest has really forced this question of this was a research idea, which was adopted widely overnight. How do we make sure this is used in a responsible way? And what are the risks? Because whenever a tool is powerful, you have both amplified risk as well as amplified impact. I think the value divide, and I'd be curious to hear what you think about it as well, is that there's a sense that this is part of a wider march towards much more performant models, and that our focus should be on making sure that those are developed in a way that is not a threat to humans and human welfare. And this is what I would call the focus on existential risk. I think that for people who are concerned about current models, this sometimes is in tension with feeling that we need enough resources to also make sure that our models, which are current deployed, don't amplify risk of some issues. Like Closest to my mind and to my heart right now is just misinformation. I really am concerned that we've created models where the generated text is not uh, distinguishable to a human. And so we've lowered the barrier of creating information. This is really positive. It means that for in some cases, we're enabling people to communicate and to really be creative in new ways. But on the negative side, I think we've also lowered the barrier to entry for some problematic uses of information creation. And so, top of my mind is actually things like how do we make sure that we're, we're investing in directions that actually could help us identify text that's generated by a model, but also that we have good traceability for models and we know how they're being used in different places. That would Be if I were to characterize the divide between those who are focused on future models versus those who are focused on current, it's more a divide about where resources should be allocated. If you care a lot about existential risk, often you care a lot about use cases like biosecurity threats. For me, this is a compelling risk. It it tends to have immediacy to those that hear about it because it feels, wow, if a language model can describe to someone how to build a bomb, it feels very visceral. People can see that risk. But I often find that, is this the most frequent risk that we're going to see in terms of how people actually use these models? And if that's the risk that we care about, I think that's addressable. But does that displace the conversation about all these other risks? Because we've created universal models that can be used for many different use cases. And sometimes I think there's certain use cases that occupy a lot of the discussion and kind of display some of these more important or equally important conversations about how do we make sure that these are representative? How do we make sure they cover languages outside of English? How do we make sure that we have these protocols in place to really isolate bad actors? Yeah, I don't know. What do you think?
0: I guess I tend to think that it all has its place. Like, glad that somebody's thinking about bio-risk. I'm glad that somebody's thinking about broad AI safety concerns. I think there's too small a set of resources going to thinking about safety broadly. But I don't necessarily see that the pie is being split in such a way that there's a vast amount of money going to our resources going to existential risk questions as opposed to kind of short-term alignment issues around LLMs. I think that it often strikes me that these are two kind of Polls that are talking past one another and tend to think that hey, if you're really concerned about kind of this bioalignment risk, go do your thing. This is just impressions based on what I'm seeing and and what I'm hearing in conversations.
1: I think that there's definitely something to risk diversification. I always say when you have a portfolio of research ideas, research ideas, it's important that you don't have a bunch of researchers working on the same direction to the problem. In general, we like history has shown that the more diverse your approaches, the more interesting the outcomes. I think that definitely, from my perspective, it's important to have researchers who are working on different aspects. When you talk to a lot of people who are working on existential risk, in practice, what they end up doing is a bit closer to working on current threat models, which is really interesting when you kind of, look at what research is actually produced. My main goal right now is actually getting everyone into the same forums, because I think that often we've invented new language for some things that are used in the different communities, but are really the same thing. Like mechanistic interpretability is a perfect example. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Why have we recast interpretability as mechanistic interpretability? But depending on if you're interested in existential risk versus if you've been working on response by AI, you'll call something mechanistic interpretability versus interpretability. So I think mm-hmm. part of my goal is to anchor these to a similar form and start these conversations. But there is no doubt in my mind that it has skewed for the general public, not, I think, for someone that's talking to researchers every day, which I think... You do. But for the general public, I do think that the framing of existential risk is gripping. And case studies like biosecurity tend to feel intuitive to a lot of people and maybe more immediate than some things like I think that we tend to weight problems which feel like they impact us. And so the focus on multilingual has been secondary to a lot of labs where these models have been created, which have been primarily in English speaking and Western countries and China, where there's Chinese specific models. But part of that is that we tend to wait what we feel impacts us. And so I do think some of this focus on narrow use cases like biosecurity is also it doesn't really speak to all the ways in which these models will be used across the world. Um, and so that sure, I think has to sure. be balanced.
0: But do you feel that the kind of the public perception and the the weight of these existential risk questions and among the general public and its kind of attraction from, a, hey, this, you know, relates to the sci-fi movies that I've seen or the action movies that I've seen. like Do you think that that is the concern because you think that that is a leading indicator of the way resources will be distributed in, in years?
1: I think so. I think that it's a very, so first of all, when you talk about existential risk in the future, you're not very accountable for it, right? Because you're preventing mm-hmm. future risks from ever occurring. So how do you measure progress on this? <laughs> so, you know, I think I actually prefer the, I, I think that the researchers who've articulated a certain risk, like biothreat and are anchoring it on how, you know, what's the capability for this threat? That makes more sense to me. But a lot of the r- discussion of risk has been a bit decoupled. It's been about this future risk, this future generation of models that's much more powerful. And for me, that's hard because it doesn't really give us a way in which to measure progress. How do we know if we're mitigating that risk? How do we know if we're improving that risk? When you come down to it, often the first step involves the current brittleness of our systems. and But framing it in terms of existential threat, there's no doubt that that's, it's anxiety-inducing for the general public, which I, I think we see in how people have reacted and riskfully connected with it. For me, my role as a researcher is to have technically grounded conversations about how our models are used, how they're failing, and how they're succeeding. So for me, I much prefer a conversation in which we're anchored to discussions of the risks that we see every day, because that is ultimately where our models are failing today. I also wouldn't be really giving the full pitch if I didn't say our field is moving very fast. But it's a less precise conversation for me when I'm imagining a future model rather than anchoring to the capabilities of our current models. And mm-hmm. I think given our current models, there's very pressing current risks. These models are being used all over the world.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... I haven't seen any data that necessarily demonstrates that some increasing share of resources is bound to go to existential risk because we're talking about them publicly. You know, one could contend that, well, it's obvious the things that people talk about are the things that get funded. But uh, sometimes the conversations feel like, oh, well, you shouldn't work on this thing that you're passionate about because it's not important, you know, from one side or the other. I tend not to think that's true. I think people should work on what they care about. And... You know, I think about examples like open AI historically was very focused on AI safety and these kind of big picture existential risk-esque questions. And yet they're producing practical things as a consequence of that broader mission, right? And so I don't know that the two are even mutually exclusive from that perspective. Like you can be worried about these big picture long-term questions and still produce practical, intermediate results?
1: Here's the thing. The research is too hard to do it if you don't care deeply about it. So you're right that we need to be driven by the questions that give us joy. I also think you're right that Typically, you can't identify what research directions are promising. And so if researchers care deeply about some specific types of risks, it's good that in general, there's much more recognition for the risks that these models can have and for the role that we should all play in safeguarding the responsible use of these models. At the end of the day how these terms come to be used and define the public conversation, it impacts the, the terms of the discourse. And that's the truth. So if we're all talking about existential mm-hmm. risk, to re-anchor the conversation to current risks, you do have to intentionally intervene to say, well, this should make their agenda. And that is something that I do think researchers are struggling with, because frankly, current risks are not making the agenda in many places. And in many places, they're going to inform how these models are developed and where they're deployed and who uses them. And so that's the only thing I will say is like as a researcher who I think my job is to add a technical perspective is that it needs both need to make their agenda. And right now, I think in a lot of places where the framework and the ecosystem for how these models are developed is being decided, they're not both treated equally. Someone said to me, who uh, works in the U.S. Senate, they said to me, off the record, they said, you know, response for AI bill has been slowly marching through for the last 10 years. But in the last year, we've just seen remarkable interest (laughs) in thinking about existential risk and like, how do we do auditing of national security threats? There's certain things that gravitate. And I think that The role of a researcher and an advocate should be to make sure that we don't lose sight of everything that's happening. Yeah. That being said, it's good that we have diversity in the types of ideas that are being developed. And when you look at it, mm-hmm. when you actually look at the implementation, I think there's more in common between all these ideas and the formulations. One of the things I'm increasingly trying to do is just convene forums so that we can see the similarities in the work and the approaches and also stop publishing at the same venues. I think that one of the things that's created this artificial value divide is that, you know, a lot of researchers who are interested in existential risk don't publish in the same venues as like traditional researchers who have worked a responsible way. So that's a value divide, which is kind of Mm -hmm. an artificial one, I think in many ways.
0: Mm -hmm. With the caveat that if they're not talking about actual models and implementations of things, a lot of the venues that the other type of researchers might publish in might not be appropriate, (laughs) right? Like there's a difference between a think tanky kind of venue and a, a more pragmatic venue.
1: So yeah, that's probably another aspect which is causing this like hit or miss in terms of the discussions that have been had.
0: Yeah, I think what, what one thing that's really interesting that you said is that it's much more difficult to establish a degree of accountability over, the, you know, this very far think tanky, forward looking, future model based research. Whereas folks that are working on kind of more pragmatic, more practical things, they're at least Trying to beat some benchmark now—that's a, that's a whole other question. Whether you know we've over-indexed on benchmarks, and we can probably uh, take that one someplace too. But I agree with you that it's a lot harder to hold that genre of research to accountability to account.
1: Yeah, we're bad at telling the future <laughs> as humans, you yeah. know. So we okay. we're obviously bad at <laughs> right. it. And I think then when we—it's one of the things that. It's really interesting, even for causal frameworks, that's one of the big motivations is that, oh, we're really good at doing modeling what would happen if there was this intervention versus that. But we're only really good at that for like very short term physical simulations, like would this cup drop if I released it? We're actually notoriously Mm -hmm. bad at telling the future for things like, should I change jobs or should I marry this partner? That's why those types of choices paralyze us so much. So in general... I think my emphasis on wanting a technical grounded conversation is just that it does become more tenuous the further you're projecting out. Who would have known that this year would have happened? I think that many of the components were in place. Many of the technical people who worked on it can see the components, but the speed at which it happened and also the speed at which is continuing to happen wasn't foreseeable by many of the people who worked on it, which maybe, to be fair, is one of the And a lot of my colleagues are very invested in like this really characterizing the risk of these models over time. This, to be fair, is one of the areas I do resonate. I was
0: just going to say you're making their argument.
1: Yeah, I do resonate with that, that we have this acceleration of research and that we do have to have some ability to at least create cross-institutional conversations around what we see in terms of risk. But whether we're going to do a good job of actually modeling that amplification of risk is a totally different question. What is a frontier model? When does a model become a frontier model? Like the notion of frontier model, and this is a paper which I actually collaborated on, which I find really interesting, is interesting because it's proposing this idea that there's a transition when a model becomes a frontier model and that's when it can cause immense you know harm to human welfare. But how do we characterize that? When we actually try and anchor that to current benchmarks, what does that mean? We don't even use the same benchmarks across our industry, or in cross research labs, there's a crisis of evaluation happening right now. So, do we really have what it takes to pinpoint a single moment when a model ceases to be a normal model and becomes a frontier model? This is the trickiness, and this is where my call for a more grounded conversation, because. This is what we need to actually characterize and mitigate some of this risk in practice. Is kind of an anchoring to how do we measure progress? Like when are we riskier? When are we less risky? And that's what's missing from some of these discussions. I think along long-term risk is that there's an inability to characterize it. What someone would say back to me then is that well, just because it's hard doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. And that's where I kind of share your viewpoint. It's okay for some people to do it. I think the same way. It's it's good for some people to work on many different research directions that can play a pivotal importance. Right now, though, I would say it is a lot of people who are using that framework to discuss these models. And maybe that's where I want people to remember that we also need to make sure that we have ways in which we anchor this to what's actually happening on the ground. And we don't forget the ways in which these models are currently failing.
0: You mentioned the frontier model paper and that this frontier model is kind of a framework for thinking about this. Can you unpack that a little bit? The way you described a frontier model, when I think of a frontier model, I think of frontier as being new and powerful. And you described it as a model evolving to become a frontier model. Which there's some dissonance there for me. So, can you unpack that a little bit in terms of this framework?
1: Yeah. So, this was a cross institutional collaboration. I actually think this was a collaboration where people had very different viewpoints about what risk is and whether mm-hmm. how do we focus on current risk versus future risk. The paper proposed that a frontier model is a model which has uh, just this likelihood of being able to cause. A serious impact to human welfare that was negative. And to demonstrate, perhaps in the vein of emergent abilities, when you scale that certain abilities emerge, that you demonstrate these abilities that are considered to be quite harmful. What I would say is, and what I push this And is bridge it, out would of, an
0: LLM be considered a frontier model?
1: It wouldn't under the terms of this paper. And that's where I would push because I think this paper came out of a Mm -hmm. workshop. So it was actually really fun. And it was really fun to grapple with this, uh, with a group of co-authors who all had different ideas of what risk is. But I would say, how do you tell? Like what's the inflection point where LLM is not a frontier model, but then becomes a frontier model. And that's where I think it gets a bit harder. And I don't think that paper resolves that. I think that paper talks about what should happen when it becomes a frontier model. But the meat of the question, what's needed to actually implement this as policy, would be how do you identify when it happens? And is it a binary moment? Can a model be a frontier model, then regress and be non-frontier? As soon as you start thinking about the nuances, you realize that this is actually a very difficult idea and practice to implement because we don't have standard ways of evaluating. And what do we evaluate for when it's a universal model, when we expect it to do everything? Let's say that you're highly performant in one skill, which might lead to risk. Does that mean that it's a frontier model? And if if we only care about one attribute, what is it? Is it biosecurity? Well, if I know that I'm going to be evaluated as a frontier model on just biosecurity, I'll just make sure my model doesn't produce any recommendations for biosecurity. But remember, these models are like that water water bottle. Like when you slosh it to one side to solve one thing, you're taking it away from another. So for me, that's the crux of this question. And when you talk about that in that level of detail, you're kind of back to current risk. If we can't even measure current risk appropriately, how we measuring this transition inflection point to frontier AI. But I like conversations like that when we're all in the same room working on a paper. And it's I think that that's the type of grappling we need to make sure that some of these perspectives are anchored. And that's why I like to focus on talking about the challenges we have with current risk, because I still, I think these compound when you project down. It's not that it gets easier, it's mm-hmm. compounds. If you don't have a good way to address current risk, projecting that out and trying to identify how that would translate into these inflection points, it's almost like reinforcement learning. All the issues with reinforcement learning is that many of the issues with reinforcement learning are present with static models. You have the issue of you have to identify uncertainty and you have to sample efficiently. That's both true for current models, but with reinforcement learning, it just compounds everything because you have this time element. And so you end up with uh, really precarious algorithms that are really hard to control.
0: Do you have a sense for you know when you think about the existential risk community slash conversation slash direction however you want to characterize that? You know, a lot of the existential risk conversation that I hear about is projecting far forward. Well, I guess they might argue that it's not as far as I might think, but they're projecting to like sentience, and the kind of the the crux of the issue is sentient AI, whereas Bio risk, infrastructure risk, all these other things—they're you know maybe not the the near term that you're looking at, but they're more near term than than sent. They don't presuppose you know some leap to sentience. Do you think of that existential risk community as kind of a monolith? Anyone who thinks that you know and is worried about AI kind of being dangerous on a large scale, or do you recognize? kind of differences in both focus and time horizon of folks on that side of the conversation.
1: Yeah. And to be honest, it's not that side versus this side. Like I know a lot, I collaborate with a lot of uh, (laughs) existential risk collaborators. And in some ways they're my colleagues, right? We're all the same. Mm -hmm. We're researchers, super smart people interrogating what these models do and what their capabilities are. I would say, I think there's actually a big, you know, there's a variety of perspectives, even within existential risk, mainly because it's so underspecified as a concept right? What do you mean by existential risk? What is a risk that's significant enough to be a threat to human life or, you know, existence? What's the timeline? I mean, the more underspecified your problem is, the more easy it is to have many, many, many different approaches and formulations that fit within that specification. The same way that I think that, you know, machine learning is It's specified in terms of a goal, but there's many, many approaches to machine learning, probably even more concrete AGI. This notion of AGI, what it means to different people. If you pull different people on AGI, they'll all say something dramatically different. And it's as much a value concept to people as it is a technical objective. And that, if I were to say, is probably my most grumpy, and I said it to my colleagues, and I think this is part of us all collaborating on this, but when you have something which can mean is very underspecified, it also means that it's hard to hold accountable. And so I think that for existential risk, there's definitely many different approaches. But also when you get down to the technical details, Those are often lacking, although I think there's some excellent researchers who are doing great work in the space who are building technical frameworks for thinking about some of these things. One of which, by the way, is the red teaming for biohazard risk. I think that was done in a really rigorous, way, really interesting way. I think that there's probably a difference in opinion about whether that's the only type of risk to focus on for red teaming or if it's a case study and how to do red teaming for that type of risk. The authors would probably acknowledge it's a case study, but like there's other risks that matter as well. In parallel, there's very long-term efforts, which are, I would say, about things like Frontier AI, which is, what does it mean? When does it happen? And how does a model look like when it happens? That's not as clear.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm curious how much of that workshop conversation went into naming Frontier AI because it, to me, hearing you describe it, it leaves out an essential, risky element that you're trying to capture and calling something Frontier AI? Uh,
1: a lot of conversation went into that name. I, I think that Frontier AI has already been widely used across different, uh, even prior to the publication of that paper. I think Frontier AI means very different things to many different people. Personally, I think Frontier AI in this case, it's referring to this transition to something which is perhaps... Capable of producing harm, but for me, names are not as important. Frankly, we've been through too many foundation models. Frontier AI—it's <laughs> more important yeah. to be clear about what we mean by the definitions, and that's where I think we have some more work to do.
0: Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm picking up on the the same thing. I think Frontier AI sounds very much like, or you know, Frontier models sound like sounds like foundation models. It doesn't connotate to me that. The thing we're trying to get at is this ability to cause harm in a a different way or in a larger scale or on a different time horizon or something, which... Sounds like it's an important part of what Frontier AI is trying to talk about.
1: Yeah, I think you should suggest renaming it, Sam. (laughs) We'll (laughs) we'll invite you to the next workshop.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Well, I think this may end up being a part one and part two. And I'm sure we could come up with a part three if we kept going, but we're not going to do that for right now. But thanks so much for coming back on and chatting about what you've been up to. Super, super interesting stuff.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. It was really, I really enjoyed catching up and I love the conversation. I really enjoyed the variety of concepts that we covered. I feel like we got through a lot. <laughs> so thank you so much.
0: Wait, this is like an old school length episode. They've been a lot shorter in recent years. So that was fun for sure.
1: Oh, really? Wow. We had a lot to talk about.
0: <laughs> Very good. Thanks so much, Sarah.